From Casa de Esperanza's National Latino Network, I'm Cristina Escobar, and this is Conversations Over Cafecito. At Casa de Esperanza National Latino Network, we understand that visibility and representation matters. Join us as we interview advocates, community members, nonprofit leaders, trailblazers, and policy influencers about their contributions to end gender-based violence, what they wish they had known, and how their life experiences influenced where they are today. In honor of Women's History Month, in this episode, we'll get to know Dr. Kathleen D. Cahill, Associate Professor of History at Penn State. Last year, she published her second book, Recasting the Vote, How Women of Color Transformed the Suffrage Movement. And we're talking to her today about the 100th anniversary of the 19th Amendment to the U.S. Constitution, which states, the right of citizens of the United States to vote shall not be denied or abridged by the United States or any state on account of sex. Let's meet Dr. Cahill. Hello. Hello. How are you? Good. How are you? Good. I'm uh, so excited to have you. I'm excited to be here. The name of our podcast is Conversations Over Cafecito. And I want to start off by saying welcome, Dr. Cahill. Thank you so much for joining us today. Before we start, we always like to ask our guests, how do you take your cafecito? Uh, con leche. Uh, <laughs> But today I'm actually drinking tea. I can't drink coffee afternoon, so. <laughs> uh, I'm the same way. I get kind of sensitive to it. I hear that. I hear that. Being in New Mexico and teaching, um, I taught women's history at University of New Mexico. And um, that got me really thinking about this, this book um, that I wrote for the suffrage centennial and sort of whose stories were gonna be celebrated at that um, for the centennial, that really got me thinking about like, well, what, what would a history of suffrage look like that maybe told some different stories and, and came from different perspectives? Yeah, and I'd love for you to delve in. Why does history matter in building sort of more equitable systems, especially around communities of color? I think in order for um, people to have a sense that they can shape the presence, present, or more importantly, that sort of uh, white or Anglo folks understanding that people of color have always been part of these conversations. And so there's not a sense that they're suddenly, you know, demanding seats at the table. Um, and this is somehow an aberration in American history, but that there's a really long um, history of uh, people being parts of these debates and conversations. And so kind of to imagine a future that, um, you know, is more equitable and in which people um, have a voice, I think it's important to recognize the, the, the past and that, again, this isn't new. Um, and also, I think, right, a sense of um, pride in knowing that there are stories that uh, of people who've shaped the nation, right? And that those people come from all communities, um, as well as understanding that some of these problems have really deep roots and that in order to address them in the present, we actually have to understand um, where they come from, um, how pervasive they are and sort of ways in which sometimes they 
they're often intended, but sometimes they were unintended consequences. And so um, I think all of those reasons um, make history important. Yeah, to me, I see that like understanding the roots, but also understanding that change is possible. <laughs> but before we get to the inspirational, I want to, or as maybe part of the inspirational, I want to talk a little bit about race and white privilege specifically being important to understanding the women's movement and the women's suffrage movement. Um, why focus on women of color? Why is that particularly important? And how does it sort of under, help us understand what's going on today as we celebrate this 100th anniversary? Yeah, I mean, um, <laughs> there's a lot to unpack there. I mean, I think it, so to your point, like a lot has changed, but we also still see sort of questions of um, voting rights and voting access is still with us um, as an important um, conversation nationally. And so, um, so I think this was a great opportunity for us to sort of think about that um, as, a, as a country. I mean, I think the way that we've told the story of voting rights for women um, and thinking about the suffrage movement is really one that's focused on white women. And so one of the ways I start my lectures is often by showing if you do a Google image search for suffragists, um, all of the pictures are usually of white women. It may have changed over this year, but even this fall, I was still um, getting that. And so the narrative is pretty much the people who were fighting for this um, were white women and they got it in 1920 and the problem is over and it's solved. Um, and that's A, not the case, right? We see that the question of um, voting rights is still very much with us, but also it really, um, elides these bigger conversations about um, citizenship and um, political participation um, at the time in, in the 19 teens and 20s and, and really back um, into the 19th century that were conversations um, that were often all about race mm -hmm. and sort of who had, who deserved full rights of citizenship, who had them and who didn't. And, you know, the suffragists, the white suffragists um, really helped shape that narrative. Um, Elizabeth Cady Stanton and Susan B. Anthony write kind of the first history of the suffrage movement, it's a six volume history. And it's the place that, that historians kind of started from, right? Well, you go to here, they've already laid it out for you, but their history, there were a few African-American women mentioned in it, but their roles were downplayed. And certainly it wasn't all of them. And so, you know, from that very beginning, the story left a lot of people out. Yeah. You know, I was struck by reading your book about how different, even among the women of color, the different um, obstacles that they faced, you know, like it was a very different for Native American women versus the Hispanas versus the Asian Chinese women you profile, but also for the women of color who are not black, the anti-blackness that they showed. Um, you know, it's like very clear that they're sort of trying to align themselves with whiteness and that that's the strategy. Um, and you still see some of that today, but sort of reading it and how um, clear, <laughs> blatant, un unabashed perhaps it was, felt like a little ping on my <laughs> heartstrings. Um, and I'd love, you know, do you have thoughts about like why it's particularly important to talk about sort of the difference 
struggles and the ways in which we were both the same and different within the women of color community, because even there we saw sort of big differences. Um, and I thought particularly the anti-blackness showing up in, in stark contrast to the, some of the accounts of lynching in the book that are just brutal and feeling like our communities, many of our communities were not standing against that violence at the time um, and the sort of healing and um, unearthing of that that we need to do. Uh, people of color felt like they would lose positions, they would lose, um, you know, they would lose something if they were seen as black. Um, and it was a way to kind of make themselves look more white and therefore closer to kind of full citizenship. And that was a strategy that definitely some people um, used. And in that moment, I can, I can sort of understand why I, it's a choice, right, that I, it is painful, as you say, but it's because of the way society was structured so rigidly, right? This is the moment of Jim Crow and the one drop rule and sort of this all or nothing, zero sum game. And, and most white Americans had trouble thinking about race, um, or ethnicity kind of more broadly. So you see a lot of white ethnic immigrants doing exactly the same thing, right? Um, really trying to prove their, that they were white or closer to white by um, you know, using kind of really horrible anti-black racism. All of these women face prejudice and stereotypes from white America, all of them, um, but they were different and they were able to navigate them differently from anti-blackness. Yeah. Yeah, and it feels it feels hard in the book to want to be lifting up these sort of this sort of pan definition of women of color, but then also knowing that it seems like all of the non-black women of color are willing to throw the black women under the bus and the white women as well, um, and also knowing that even as suffrage was passed, as we ratified the 19th Amendment exactly 100 years ago, as we're in Women's History Month now, that that wasn't an endpoint, right, for so many of these women. And that's something that I really appreciated in the book as well about the continuing fight for the vote for women of color. Um, and I'd love to sort of talk about how you address the distinction. Like in some ways we're celebrating the 19th Amendment, but in other ways we're saying like, it's a, it's a point on the journey, it's not an end point. And so I'd love for you to kind of talk a little bit more about how you address that distinction, how you talk about it, where we can sort of hold space for the moment, but also honor the fact that we have not arrived. The way I phrase it in the book is the 19th Amendment only says you cannot discriminate on the basis of sex, right? But that leaves open all of these other ways in which you can discriminate against uh, people or keep them from voting, right? And so um, for Native women and for um, particularly um, immigrants, right, citizenship becomes one of those places. So Native people um, are not seen as full citizens of the United States. They're legally wards of the government until 1924 with the Indian Citizenship Act. And even after 1924, there are kind of these legal technicalities of, well, do they live on trust land, so reservation land? And a lot of states say, well, then they're not full citizens and they can't vote. Um, and state courts uphold this. And again, it's not until the Voting Rights Act um, that you see that some of those laws change. Or, right, other ways of just discouraging voter turnout. So questions like what language is the ballot in? 
Mm -hmm. um, just by insisting that that's in English or having English literacy um, tests, you really make it difficult for people who don't speak English to vote, right? I mean, you see a lot of that kind of thing in Western states uh, aimed at Spanish speakers, at um, Asian immigrants, and at Native people. So um, there are both, uh, you know, again, there's sort of a lot of other ways to keep people from voting, even if like Native people in 1924 is when they are supposed to be able to vote, but there are a lot of ways in which they're kept from voting um, even beyond that. It's interesting, we at Casa de Esperanza National Latino Network, we do a lot of work on language access, mm. reading about <laughs> the 100 plus year struggle, how this was sort of baked into our national history and has been something we've been debating and talking about the whole, the entire history of the United States was really interesting um, to see and to read about. Um, well, and that's right, and this again, when I started this project, I didn't think about the Voting Rights Act and language, but the 1975 amendment to it um, includes sort of, uh, you know, questions about language access um, and having, again, election information printed in multiple languages, which, which really helps Spanish speakers, uh, native um, folks. And so it's, you know, that's a little thing, but it is, it's not really a little thing, right? Absolutely, absolutely. And that's one of the things that I appreciated about your approach as well, is I think a lot of times when we think about voting, um, we think about um, women getting the right to vote, we think about the Voting Rights Act, but we generally think of that hist history as Black versus white, mm -hmm. um, and really thinking about the ways in which Native Americans, non-English speakers, um, also were affected and like sort of the importance of that, I, I thought was really powerful. Um, and so I'd love to talk about the suffragists that you picked. <laughs> how did you pick them? How did you find them? I love how representative they are um, and the different stories they sort of allow you to tell. But um, tell, tell us, can you introduce them? I imagine a lot oh, of people have yes. not read the book yet. We go read the book, but you wanna kind of walk us through the, women you picked, why, what was so interesting and exciting about them. Sure. Yeah, no, I, I'm always happy to talk about them. I think they're fantastic. Um, Nino Otero Warren in New Mexico, as I mentioned, I was there. Um, I learned about her from, you know, New Mexicans and, um, and her story, particularly her emphasis, again, her politics um, around suffrage come out of her being an Hispana in New Mexico um, being a huge advocate of Spanish language in a moment where Anglos are really trying to, um, you know, get rid of it and kind of English only and English um, in schools, you know, when they write the state constitution, there's an attempt to embed English only in that, that she and her family, um, the male politicians in her family are really pushing against. So when she gets involved in politics, again, she's coming from this um, other site of, of advocacy that again, we generally don't think of as um, suffrage, but for her it was, right? That's what led her to suffrage, looking for the right to vote to help advocate for her community in New Mexico. Reading it, I was struck by how exceptional so many of them were, you know, like mm -hmm. the first to get a PhD from Columbia, first Chinese woman, the first, you know, like there were so many firsts and big step forwards, but I was also intrigued by like how 
maybe they didn't actually get along. <laughs> you know, maybe there sort of wasn't that sort of like <laughs> natural allyship. It was interesting to see that they were both in some, they were in some ways really similar in terms of their exceptionalism and their commitment to politics and their communities, but in other ways, like just different, like different personalities, different approaches. And I thought that was really inspiring because I think sometimes we hear a single story about what it means to be a woman activist or a suffragist. Um, and it was nice to see that people are different. They have different approaches. They come from different places and they use different techniques, you know, whether it's poetry or student organizing that there's sort of all of these different techniques that they use to, to, and that they sort of add up to a bigger whole. Yeah, and that was really just a lot of fun to write about. And, and you're right, you know, they really, um, most of them did not leave sort of substantial archives, um, you know, diaries or things. And I had to kind of piece some of it together. So I don't always have a very clear, here's what I was thinking on these days, right? But you do get to know them. Um, and you're right, they're all very different. They come from different backgrounds. Um, you know, some of them knew each other. And so for example, Gertrude Bonin and Marie Botno Baldwin knew each other, were very similar don't seem to have gotten along at all. Right? Yeah. <laughs> so, but again, as you say, that's sort of, that happens. Um, and, and personalities do, uh, you know, come through in people's political activism as well. For sure, for sure. Um, sort of thinking about that difference in personalities, but also everyone being able to contribute and bring sort of their strengths. Um, what do you think organizations serving of women serving women of color can do um, or can learn from your books? Sort of how, do you, how do you see it as like a jumping off point into today and the work that we're doing today around women of color's rights, um, voting rights and rights in general, human rights? Yeah, and I mean, I will say, even though those two didn't get along, right? One of the things that, that these women do, I think have in common is they have a lot of support in their community and, and, and often in their families, um, you know, which I think for some of them, um, their fathers were really supportive. Mabel, Mabel Lee, who is the first Chinese woman to get her PhD at Columbia, possibly in the country. Um, her, her, both of her parents are really supportive of her education. Um, but having those sort of networks, um, particularly of other women, um, and, and being in spaces where they found that kind of support, I think was really um, important for them because as you said, these are long fights, um, long struggles. There's a lot of ways in which they um, you know, are running into prejudice or misunderstanding. Um, and to be able to kind of have that, um, those communities to go back to and a place of support, I think was really important. Um, I also think that it, you know, they're working in tandem with some of the white suffrage organizations or the national suffrage organizations. And sometimes um, they found people who were good allies and were really supportive. And, and all of these women were sort of um, willing to engage um, across those conversations. There are other women who, you know, don't and, and their suffrage activism was different. And I, I don't really write about them, but they're certainly out there. But I think, um, you know, I saw um, kind of an effort to find allies and there were places where they didn't 
but then there were sometimes places where they did. Um, but again, there was also often a lot of work of educating that that was exhausting, right? And you hear that today, right? I, I definitely think with like um, Black Lives Matter and some of these movements, um, folks say, you know, I'm tired of trying to educate the audience if they need to do some of that work. And I saw, I, I saw familiar, that was kind of familiar to what I saw with some of these women who are constantly educating their audiences. I do think that they, their work really mattered in a lot of, of areas. And I, but I also think that having those spaces where they could have conversations among themselves was really key too. Yeah. Yeah. I see them in the book sort of both speaking um, amongst their own communities and then also speaking out more broadly, right? You sort of see that tension and then also sometimes a, a code switch along the way, right? Like definitely. See, that's definitely a part of it. It's like what um, different tactics, different voices, maybe even different methods um, for that, whether it's intra or external community organizing. Yeah, absolutely. Right. And I think they, um, they were really quite strategic about that, um, kind of thinking about who their audience was um, and how they approach those audiences. And they all insist on being heard, right? I think that's the other thing is they, they knew that their voice needed to be at that table. And so they, they, they came. Um, uh, but you're, you're right. When they were having internal conversations within their own communities, it was a definitely more wide ranging um, and very, yeah, you can see the code switching. Absolutely. Right. The native women in particular knew that white women romanticized the idea of Indians. And so if they wore um, outfits, right, buckskin and their hair and braids, they were much more likely to get invited to talks and then they could, you know, what they said um, from the stage, right? It got them in the door and then they could give a talk that was um, unexpected to go back to that word. And so, yeah, they were definitely um, strategic about that. Yeah, I love that strategy. So mm -hmm. smart and so funny and good on, good on her. <laughs> and really worked. I mean, it, it worked, it can, it could backfire. Uh, but in, in this case, I saw it working pretty well. They got in the room and they were able then to talk about, uh, Gertrude Bonin calls it the Indians of today, right? And kind of an attempt to overcome some of these stereotypes and talk about what native people needed to kind of move into the future. Um, so, yeah. I want to talk a little bit about what the the policy goals were um, for suffragists. You know, we in particular in our field, we work on gender-based violence, um, sexual assault prevention, building healthy communities and families. Um, and that wasn't necessarily as, you know, forefronted obviously in some of these conversations, but it does today is branded as sort of a women's issue. And I don't know if you can provide some sort of context on um, the policy goals at the time and maybe a little bit on where gender-based violence maybe fell within them. Absolutely, right. So um, certainly in this period, is sort of um, often known as the progressive era. And there are definitely um, a number of conversations about how um, governments at all levels can, could be mobilized to sort of make society better, right? To help um, address some of the real um, problems that industrialization 
um, and was causing in terms of the, the disparities of wealth, right? There's a massive immigration, um, you know, the growth of cities. So there are all of these kind of big problems that um, many people start to argue, well, we need the government to, to really intervene and help in this. You definitely see uh, these women um, who are advocating for, again, what we might call these maternalist policies around women and children, but also that are really linked, again, to the issues of their community. So for Otara Warren, kind of the bilingual um, question uh, for Mabel Lee, the sort of the Chinese um, community needs to be uh, part of these conversations as well. And so I think, um, and for African-American women, um, again, the, the Women's Club um, organization, they're absolutely talking about education. Carrie Williams Clifford really cares a lot about um, literacy and she, um, you know, she collects books for children. She is involved with um, writing plays that get performed at some of the schools, but they're also talking about things like the violence um, that, that faces black communities. So especially lynchings, um, but also Jim Crow, the Jim Crow car um, and how it's particularly um, insulting to black women um, that they are thrown out of the, um, the ladies car uh, and put in the segregated smoking car, which was a very male space and, and actually kind of a dangerous space for women. So um, they are talking about women's issues, but they're all inflected by, kind of the, again, what their communities specifically are concerned with. Yeah. yeah, that's powerful. It has been just a total pleasure speaking to you. Is there anything that you would like to add or share with our audience of general service providers um, that you think um, they might wanna know or additional things you might wanna share about your scholarship? There's a lot of similarities. Um, you know, the field of social work um, and some of the, um, the kinds of organizations um, that are really similar uh, in doing the work that you guys are doing come out of this period around the turn of the century. Um, and it's women that are building them. Um, and many of those women are, um, as, as we've seen, active also in these questions about suffrage. Um, and, you know, women have done an enormous <laughs> amount of work in terms of building institutions and um, making these changes, right? And I think I look at the suffragists and I see them doing a lot of this institution building um, and learning how government works, um, learning kind of how, what's a successful strategy. And it did take, I mean, this, women are active in this for years and sometimes don't see the end of it, um, but they're all kind of moving things along, right? That their activism really mattered. Yeah, we talk um, at Casa de Esperanza, one of our big values is community wisdom. Mm -hmm. and being able to look to our communities and say, there's actually a lot of knowledge and strength and power. And we mm -hmm. encapsulate it in that word wisdom because it is both sort of forwards and backwards looking. Um, and that a lot of the time, the mainstream culture doesn't value that. And we really wanna say, we wanna lift that up and say that these are really important ways of knowing. Um, and that's part of why, you know, we wanted to organize this conversation is to think about 
the places where we can share those stories and uplift some of that wisdom and, and show the importance of keeping of keeping it and holding it and using it, right? We try to use it here um, and have found that that is really important for um, our community members. Mm -hmm. and, and I think that's absolutely all of the women that I wrote about really valued their that history of their community and carried that forward. And I think that's really powerful and extremely important. And I like the way you put that sort of wisdom um, and that community wisdom of the past is going to um, shape that future, yeah. I just wanna thank you one more time for spending this time sharing with our community, but also writing the book and doing this work. I think it's really powerful and valuable for us to see ourselves reflected, to know that our struggles have historical roots, but that there's also been progress made. Uh, thank you so much. And thank you for all the work you do. It's really important, so important. And uh, thank you for having me today. This was delightful. Thank you, my pleasure. This has been Conversations Over a Cafecito. Thank you everybody for listening and for joining us in particular, Dr. Catherine D. Cahill. We had a amazing conversation about the role of women of color in achieving suffrage, about what they were able to accomplish with the vote and why it's important for today's service providers. This has been another episode of Conversations Over Cafecito brought to you by the National Latino Network for Healthy Families and Communities, a project of Casa de Esperanza that builds bridges and connections among research, practice, and policy to advance effective responses to eliminate domestic violence and promote healthy relationships within Latino families and communities. For more information, visit nationallatinonetwork.org. This program has been produced by the staff at Casa de Esperanza National Latino Network and music composed by Joey Horton. I'm Cristina Escobar. Thank you for listening. Hasta la próxima.